Um, but yeah, we need something funny <laughs> at the beginning, and then I'll casually segue oh, into. Oh yeah, you think this is gonna be fucking funny, Nemo? <laughs> This is Brent Bank, it's a lamest podcast. There we go, thank you. <laughs> I'm Nima Martin, your moderator. Uh, you say them pronouns. And I I bought loads of um, matzos, matzos from Sainsbury's because they obviously didn't sell any over Passover. So they were 10p. And so now I have loads of boxes of nice. just crackers. So <laughs> that's my life right now. Excellent. <laughs> sat reading and eating matzos just like i'm grace i use they them pronouns i am on this podcast and um oh god i am your disgusting pizza boy um (laughs) me and my housemates got papa john's yesterday who do not sponsor this podcast though they should um and just got the most disgusting amount of papa john's that you could possibly imagine this is Stevie, uh, your currently primary researcher. She had pronouns. Um, I've made four latex dresses in the last ah. week. Yeah. <gasps> and I feel like it's fun and weird for people who follow me on Instagram who aren't my friends because my feed is just like, maybe I'm a grandma. And then my... <laughs> story which is what i treat as my twitter is just like yeah making more latex thanks fetish community (laughs) put bread on the table (laughs) yeah that's it's been a fun i'm sorry i'm trying to like think of something to say well also on a second stream of thought think of something to say to like segue in (laughs) so instead of saying anything at all i'm thinking nothing and the two trains of thought have crashed (laughs) talking of two trains of thought that have crashed that actually is fucking relevant well done (laughs) (laughs) because the like the vibe i had for these coming chapters was like like it i kind of did struggle to get through them a bit that I was, it was kind of like Victor Hugo. Do you want to be a historian or not? <laughs> because we get a very like, on the one hand, these sections that are like so goddamn like poetic, and the constant like, I I read the Iliad, you guys. Like <laughs> what you guys were saying last last uh, recording of um the way he describes every fucking like. The Gleaves, the very, like, here's the army rundown in the same <laughs> style of the Iliad. Um, it's that, but it's more. Um, but then also sections where it's literally just battle tactics. And on the one hand, he'll be like, this going so hard on, like, destiny, and this is what God wanted. And then on the other hand, being like, well, if they hadn't done this battle tactic, they would have won. And you're like, is can you have both, Victor Hugo? I mean, he will, whether he can <laughs> or not. Like, he's gonna. I mean, he did. <laughs> so one thing, yeah, this is, I feel like, something that did come up when I was reading about it. In a book called Contextualizing History as Adaptation, an Interdisciplinary Comparison of Historical Re- Revisionism by Franz Weiser. Yeah, we um, get it, Nemo. You read books. Yeah. I'm clever. <laughs> I can read one word. Um, so this is about his- historical revisionism. So the author was mostly talking about like um, authors who like neo-Victorianism. So writing mm. it in the current day, but pretending like they're writing a novel in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Um, and like about what actually does count as writing a history versus writing a fictional history, because we all bring biases into everything that we do anyway. And like, Anytime you write a history, like, let's say you're trying to write a factual account of Waterloo, you're still bringing in your, like, yeah, we talked about it last time as well. Mm. You're still bringing in your, like, biases and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I Um, guess you were defeated. You won the war. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that really interested me was um, the idea, so he says... During much of the 19th and 20th centuries, merit was primarily gauged by an author's adherence to secondary sources, with the role of imagination only tolerated when filling in the dark spaces unaccounted 
for by the record. Literature was therefore itself not accepted as a source by scholars, and the rare instances in which history is considered fiction involved social realism. So, why does that interest me? Because <laughs> I'm having to sort this out in my brain as we're going along. Um, the fact that Hugo treating it as a kind of like documentary, um, like if he was alive today, would he be making documentaries kind of thing? Yeah. Um, because a lot of the historians these days, like historians who write books, are also the people who get like a BBC documentary about the, their book as well. Um, and it kind of made me laugh at the thought of Hugo having a TV documentary because him writing this like account in Les Mis is like a proto documentary. <laughs> like, yes <laughs> and and also the fact that he's phrasing it in this like oh you know i went on a walk and i saw these kind of things like does phrase it in the it does kind of, feel like, documentary very filmmaking yeah kind of thing. interesting which is yeah which i found a really interesting comparison because of the um lemis film that came out last year by largely who is a documentary filmmaker and so used a lot of like documentary filmmaking even though it was a fiction film that he made um he still had that kind of like handheld camera this is a documentary film kind of like aesthetic mm. so it was interesting that even even in that kind of like format i don't know whether he like consciously did it to mimic hugo's like i'm writing a documentary but it's still it was still very like similar in that kind of that's yeah. mm. it's interesting but the thing that i can't like that's a, it's a, that is genuinely a really interesting thing to think about i don't know does the did the concept of documentary in that way um which i guess thinking about what the definition of a documentary is processing something complex in a way that is consumable for the public does that feel mm. Does that feel accurate? Like processing a historical concept, a historical time, a scientific concept? Because you wouldn't say like an academic source was a like was a documentary. Like you like that's yeah. not what it is. Yeah, I'm trying to very quickly Google the first mm. documentary films because I, but that's I'm what assuming... I mean. It's like surely the concept of of documentary didn't exist. Did the concept of documentary exist at that time? No. It... Well, not as... You know, not as it... Oh, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the first kind of ones, it seems like nine, 1898. So, like, right at the end of the 19th century. But it was really only in, like, the early 1900s that that as a concept really came up. But I guess you also have... Um, I need to Google the term. Histio histiography? Historiography? What is oh, that? Which is... I I've not heard of that before. That's why I'm Googling it. <laughs> okay. Um, it's his, historiography is the study of history and how different historians have decided to study history because it's not just like, you know, there's not just one way of studying history mm. because it was kind of that idea of like a lot of people in contemporary historiography are trying to be like, we should diversify how we talk about history and like acknowledge biases because a lot of like classical historians classical in uh that's the wrong word like standard historians mm. are kind of of the thing of like no you've got to be as objective as possible and not put your stuff in and like there's one way of doing it and it's this way and it's like the very factual way mm. whereas you know a lot of uh criticisms of that is like what is factual like mm. who creates facts and you know these kind of questions what is, what is the lens through which that is examined yeah so um, Franz Weisner and historical revisionism, that kind of stuff that I was talking about before, um, is kind of like trying to set up the idea of history as history is an adaptation mm -hmm. uh, so that so that everyone who's reading the like history, historical account is still taking into the account that it's revisionist in some in some regard. Mm. I'm I'm interested to see I'm interested to work out or hear I guess how much Hugo was a aware that he was rev revising history and b how much he cared because it's a fictional <laughs> account. One of the things that I'm trying to um I think the point that I was trying to um like think about 
when I was talking about like you know whether the concept of something along the line of documentary existed then mm. is like what his purpose was because you can sort of think about the purpose being to provide context for the story but like breaking the way that he breaks form like is mm. that sort of break of form precedented in in texts at this time like just going from what is sort of objectively telling a fictional story to proto-historical hmm i feel like that's more uh classics thing right in, in the same kind that we were talking about like with iliad and stuff capital c classics yeah um i'm trying to like look at my bookshelf i actually am trying to remember any book that i've read at the same time as victor hugo um <laughs> duma yeah he loved to do a little side hoe let's pause this let's get into this okay let's also branch off from that and describe what was going on in this area in case you also didn't know this one goat herder here's his life and what he was up to for 60 years so anyway maybe getting back to the story but wait first let's do this so um i feel like it is kind of a style that at least with these two but also these two were like dumas and uh victor hugo with bros so like I, i don't mean i don't mean like telling the story of side characters and that sort of thing or like telling stories that aren't directly relevant to the plot i'm talking about like breaking off and telling and talking about history um in the middle of plot Mm. like like talking about like um in the middle of a fictional account processing non-fiction especially for such a long time in the like was was that something that was done like in in the contemporary i have no idea (laughs) um i mean like I don't think I, I've like very skimmed over it uh, in trying to describe it, but like yeah, that Dima, in doing his like, here's what was going on in this area. It would be like, kind of the same way that Victor Hugo's gonna eventually fucking round up this Waterloo thing into like, mm. and here's why this was relevant for this character. He'd say frame it with this one goat herder boy, but you you basically learn everything about the like geography of a place and like a lot of the history of the place, and it's sometimes hard to tell which parts are real are real mm. but like you kind of get the feeling at least a certain amount of it is mm. um okay. and then you get things like the fucking oh god moby dick where you it's difficult because if it feel like this kind of was a style because mm. yeah with moby dick it's being presented to you that like i'm going to basically give you a like anthology of sea life because that's going to make this book seem more credible but actually yeah. it turns out he made up most of it but maybe you had to do that style to i don't know give yourself more credibility mm, interesting yeah so it could have been a stylistic something that was quite stylistically common at the time even though it seems very bizarre for us as something for someone to do i think as well um like something i was just thinking about was the not just the idea of him like following the classics in that like he liked the Iliad and the Odyssey, but I feel like he was trying to write an epic, like an epic poem, mm. which does have that like oral history element to it as well. Mm. And the kind of idea of like cataloging the entire like event. Um, and he was a poet first, right? A, a poet and a playwright. Mm. So the idea of him writing an epic i feel like that's something that he wanted to do <laughs> yeah and and epics do combine that kind of fiction and history yes. and yes not quite history <laughs> yeah like mythology and stuff which is all the stuff that hugo likes to do we kind of got his thesis uh, at the end of the third chapter of waterloo which we looked at last week where he's like oh i'm not I'm not a historian. I'm not trying to do that. History's not my concern. We'll leave that to the the we'll leave the uh leave to the experts their task. We are selves no more than a remote observer, a traveler across the plain. Um, that he's definitely trying to like set himself aside there. Like I feel like that's him being like, so this is going to be that kind of is going to excuse when I pause for a minute, go off mm. about destiny. But you're kind of like, at least for me reading this, I was like, but that you are trying to do both. Like, you you were literally, you are doing both. Like, you're saying you're not a historian. It was like, he was like, just so no one can fucking bitch at me later. I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> so, like, if I preface it with that, you can't have a go at me because I said that I know I'm not a historian. Yeah. 
Okay, I feel like I feel like you're we've worked through the question that I had. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You may continue. Continue with the story. <laughs> <laughs> Begin with the story. Mm. Um, so I would describe the coming six chapters as the hubris of Napoleon. Nice. <laughs> wow, um, we're really going into the the classical form now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, so where we just left off was where things seemed like they were about to be really shit for the English, I think. It was the like, it's four o'clock and it's all about to pop off. Yes, at four o'clock, the English are in serious trouble. So like, so anyway, here's what Napoleon was up to. Um, he's having a fucking great time. He feels really good about everything. Uh, he has never been in higher spirits than on that day. Um, and then, like, it is kind of funny that every, at least with this one chapter, that Victor Hugo will be like, so here's how Napoleon was feeling, that dumb bitch. He <laughs> 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 was like, here's how great he felt. He was wearing a smile and everything. Thus does destiny deceive us. Our joys are shadows. The last laugh is God's. Oh my God. <laughs> and this kind of sets up this theme of like, in the coming chapters, that on the one hand, Victor Hugo is very, literally saying with his words, it was God's fault and destiny's fault that they mm. lost. Like they specifically wanted Napoleon to fail. Um, so like, we get a lot of like, um, Napoleon literally being like, here's how good I feel about it. Um, me and Destiny are of one mind. But Napoleon was mistaken. Destiny and he were no longer of one mind. Oh no! <laughs> Friendship ended with Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so we get a lot of more like battle things of like, uh, he's sending out his armies. He, he was so fucking confident, he heard some distant marching and was like, oh, that's probably Wellington withdrawing already. <laughs> 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 On this night of 17th of June, he mocked Wellington, saying, that Englishman needs a lesson. <laughs> um, the rain fell more heavily and there was a crash of thunder as he spoke. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in this one instance, I took his destiny being like, fuck you personally. Um, but then he also, Hugo sets up this, so we've got the theme of like, destiny and God decided that they would lose this battle. Then we get this theme of like, classical imagery. We get a lot of like, literally talking about like Zeus and the classical gods and like Titans and these kind of references. So I was now going back and seeing Thunder, I'm like, oh, is this another Zeus is out there have, mm. throwing in his two cents? I guess it's also just like the, the sort of the classical um, pathetic fallacy sort of thing yeah hey guys oh What's yeah that? how many fanfics do you think there are between napoleon Bonaparte? <laughs> <laughs> Wellington? Wellington. 46 you know, this is an... wait is that true oh no okay oh no we're doing this okay um i think i think there's more than 46 um i'm gonna go 130 there's four oh. what yeah. Well, you'll see me in there later. <laughs> Damn. But I think it's from a visual novel, like a visual no novel called Ikemen Vampire. Oh my um, god. I think they use the like characters of like actual people. So I don't know whether there's like actual real person fic of them. <laughs> wow. wow. I thought I thought there would be way more thirsty historians in that. Right. Mm. Especially because, as at least how Victor Hugo is going to set them up in a couple chapters for you guys, they're the narrative <laughs> foils of each other, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we get a lot more of, like, how fucking overconfident Napoleon was feeling. Our chances are 90 in 100. Um, and then, okay, this bit actually did amuse me. Like, when I first started reading these chapters, I was like, you know what, this is a good time. And then I slowly slogged off. Um, <laughs> we get, like... This really funny, like, interpretation of Napoleon where Victor Hugo's like, um, here's some witty jokes he's told. He's just like, he's full of jokes, more crude than witty. Um, <laughs> this aspect of the great man deserves to be stressed. Um, <laughs> but literally he's like, here's a quote of someone saying that Napoleon loved to, like, tease people and he'd tweak their little <laughs> oh ears and their God. mustaches and you're like, okay, what? Wow, that's incredible. Imagine, like, imagine writing that in a book. I'm just, <laughs> it's just incredible. 
Yeah. He's so... like just out there being like Napoleon, you little freak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, the man who can laugh in this fashion feels himself to be in harmony with events. Napoleon had several bursts of laughter during that Waterloo breakfast. Um, which I guess is back to the like, he felt like it was going to go so well, but we all know that it's not. Yeah, no, this is just more and more of this thing happened and he, and Napoleon's like, magnificent. Uh, they send out a couple like troops of their gunmen and he's like, two dozen very pretty, pretty girls, general, like <laughs> the jokes and japes of war. <laughs> Oh, um, important addition. Um, so I just didn't know that the Duke of Wellington's name was Arthur Wellesley, Wellesley, mm. Wellesley, because you know <laughs> I understand history. There's twelve. Um, twelve fix. Twelve what? Yeah. Fix. Napoleonic oh, era RPF. Ah. Uh, because they don't tag them as uh, Napoleon and the Duke of Wellington. They tag it as Napoleon and Arthur, Arthur Wells. Wells. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, first name basis. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Much more personal. Sorry, yeah. continue. <laughs> I just thought I'd... <laughs> well, damn, I, thought, I still thought there'd be more than that. Yeah, same. Mm. But... We, should, we should read them and share the good ones in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> We'll start a whole new fandom. Yeah. Excellent. I want to see at least 13 by the time, by <laughs> the week after the time that this um, podcast is released. Yeah. Or if there's like, wait, 12, 13, 14, 15, there's 15 by the time the episode comes out because each of us have to have written one. Oh, no. <laughs> and then each of our listeners has to write one too. Yeah. And also they've got to work out which ones we wrote. Damn. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> right. We get some more. Victor Hugo sort of, as before, that he's like, so anyway, here's what was going on with the countryside. Basically, it, if you go today, the countryside has been so disfi- disfigured by the battle, um, robbed of its natural contours to make a funeral mo- monument. I-, I feel like that's a thing he likes to do a lot, at least in the, these Waterloo segments, be like, oh yeah, so that tree, it used to be a good tree, but it got shot. <laughs> Um, which is a lot more poignant than when I describe it like that. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like he tree got shot. <laughs> Damn, shit. Like he does like to take the time to like appreciate, I guess, the scars that war leaves on the landscapes that he's traversing. I think that's that's some of the the capital R uh, romanticism. Romance, there, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and then fool that I was, at what, we get the line along the crest of the ridge. They ran a sort of trench invisible to the observer at a distance and this must be described and i was like must it be described <laughs> must it um it, it turns out it must uh <laughs> you don't need to but it could be summarized a lot more victor hugo that basically between these two areas you're coming down a hill and there's a very well well hidden trench and you can't see it so just bear that in mind mm-hmm. um and that's all that he really needed to say but <laughs> Wow, I feel like he just Chekhov's gunned. <laughs> um, on the day of the battle, nothing gave warning of this sunken lane. A hidden furrow in the earth, invisible and therefore terrible. Mm. So I'm like, oh, okay, so it's a poignant trench. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to what's going on with Napoleon. Um, <laughs> I feel like Poignant Trench was the name of my first album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Napoleon's still so fucking confident that um, nothing, none of the things going wrong of the day dismayed him. I was going to read you out a load of them, but actually there's so much fucking stuff to get through, I don't think there's the time, but <laughs> I promise you there's a solid page of like, so, uh, like this br- brigade has been broken, we've lost X amount of men, um, the infiltrating cavalry are down, uh, like a whole page of like, so this went wrong this wasn't in their favor this is what this is how many people they've lost um it, a lot of semicolons and we do love to see a semicolon Damn. <laughs> yeah so okay okay i know i know you were literally just saying hey so we don't have time for this but do you think and i'm happy for the answer to be a no here do you think that in the way that he is um talking about that when he's sort of talking in detail about, um, you know, this front fell and this many people died, he's setting us up for the barricade. 
because it has very that sort of to me like that was what i was thinking of when you were talking about it it's got that sort of aspect of um uh military tactics in the sort of way that could be addressed as part of why the barricades didn't work Hmm. am i stretching that no i'm just trying to think i'm trying to remember um how the barricade is talked about and i feel like it's talked about in far more like personal tones yeah where it's not written in the which does support what you're saying Mm. because they don't have the military background of like and you know this many arms fell because they Mm. only had a certain amount of people and they didn't have yeah so maybe if if you want like a little taste of it for us to compare when we eventually get to the Mm. barricades it's like um so, nor did men- the many viscitudes of the day dismay him, the holding of Hugomont, the stubborn resistance of La Hessant, the death of Baldan and wounding of Foy, the unexpected wall against which Soy's brigade was broken, the fatal negligence of Gil- Gilminot, who had neither grenades nor powder bags, the bogging down of the batteries, the fifteen unescorted guns overturned by the Uxbridge in a sunken lane. This is but four lines of a page. <laughs> <laughs> um, that I it's um at least for what i know of and like where this is it very much is like here is all this shit napoleon is still really fucking sure um like the scale least seemed to trouble him or cloud his aspect um the figures mattered little to him provided they added up to the right total which was victory um early setbacks did not shake him since he believed himself to be the master of the conclusion he could afford to wait. He was beyond question the equal of destiny to whom he seemed to say, you would not dare. <laughs> He's so sure of himself and that the like war is sort of almost like a transaction. The sort of like the figures might not be in his favor right now, but he's looking at the end game. Like it doesn't matter what's happening at this point as long as the outcome is you had victory no matter what the yeah. cost. If that's sort of how the barricade is treated later, then... But that's what I'm thinking, because it, it comes... It it feels very... Um, the odds were not in their favour, but Enjolras um, is sitting there thinking, the people too will rise, the people too will rise, the people too will rise, which obviously there is sort of an aspect of foolhardiness mm. to... Mm, okay so i'm at the barricade in the it is so i'm on page 992 of my book which is chapter 10 11 12 of and you have the the rose translation i have the rose translation Yeah. yeah um and it is written in a pretty like warlike way like um Andra spoke like he was the true, like the true riot general that he was. Um, so he's given like a title mm. and he is commanding. Actually, on the next page, um, it, it starts talking about Napoleon again, uh, about like uh, in Rue Planche Mibray, they hurled shards of old crockery and household utensils at the troops from the rooftops. This was a bad sign. And when the incident was reported to Marshal Soult, Napoleon's old lieutenant became dreamy, remembering Suchet Sarkos's dictum. We're finished when the old woman emptied the chamber pots on her head. So it's kind of like it both militarizes it in that it like adds Napoleon to mm. the mix, but also uh, domesticates it by um, yeah. adding the old woman. So interesting. Hmm. I wonder if he's setting up here that God didn't want the barricade boys to win. If that's what he's saying about Napoleon. Yeah. Mm. Oh. This is like literally the Napoleon, you're a destiny's bitch page. But like him being like, destiny, you wouldn't dare to let me lose. Um, Napoleon believed himself to be protected in good and tolerated in evil, which I quite like. Mm. Um, that's a nice line. I know. I find it um, strange. I was rereading a couple of things of the barricade a couple of days ago and it, I, maybe he was just reading it wrong, but it sounded like Hugo was on the side of non-violent barricades any, or like non-violent protest, oh. which is weird for writing Les Mis. Mm. Um, 
but there was a paragraph that was I'm not going to try and find it now because it will be impossible but that was kind of basically saying like um you know people of both sides are going to get angry with me um but I I, I think that there are better ways to protest than to riot. And it was like, Hugo. <laughs> I can't believe he's a liberal. Jesus. Right? <laughs> and it, it was that kind of thing, which was like, oh, you know, people have, just as people have the right to um, protest and get violent, people have the right to live their life and not join into revolution. What? And it was like, no, only privileged people do. <laughs> And I don't know, yeah, it is that kind of thing which happens now, which is like, oh, you know, but it doesn't affect me. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you should care it's, about other people. Yeah, it's that onion ty- uh, onion headline, isn't it? I don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I have to reread it again. Interesting. I don't know whether I was just reading it, like, really out of context. But I, I found that piece again was like, wait, hold on, what you're saying here is not what the book says. But then it also does kind of, it is that kind of thing of like, oh, you know, they're martyrs and they died futile deaths because mm. capitalism wasn't, well, uh, not capitalism, but the government wasn't listening, to, willing to listen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know, complicated. <laughs> mm. I think I think that my thesis stands so far. Yeah. I don't know how to bring that back to Napoleon. <laughs> Sorry, Stevie. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, Napoleon's still pretty sure of himself and that any bad that he has to do will be tolerated. Um, which I will, kind of, I was like, Javert question mark? When Wellington recoiled, Napoleon was thrilled. <laughs> um, uh, that's, so the... that's a direct line from one of the figs. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be. How did you find my fix so soon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this is sort of the point. Uh, like, we got that list of all the things that were sort of getting fucked up for the French. But overall, they like it was sort of on both sides. Uh, and the English were struggling a lot as well. So Wellington was starting to have to withdraw and Napoleon was able to push forward a bit. Napoleon's guard watched him with an almost religious awe. Um, this man, like, on his horse, so confident in his victory. <laughs> Then we've got, like, a the emperor was so, like, he turned and ordered a dispatcher rider to ride post-haste to Paris with the news that the battle had been won. And I was like, Hubert! Um, But then there was a little footnote that was like, this has been questioned. It seems that uh, he may have misread Napoleon's dispatch. And I wasn't sure if that was Hugo saying that or if that was, like, an editor coming in and being like, Mm. "Mm." Did that happen? Yeah. Napoleon was the genius who commands thunder, and he had his thunderbolt. He ordered the the cuirassiers under Milhaud to take the plateau of Montségin. Um, so that's his like horse army. Um, so we've got more of this like old gods sort of Zeus imagery with mm. his thunderbolt, and he's going to smite them. His squad of twenty six, uh, sorry, twenty six squadrons of big men on enormous horses. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a quote. Nice. Thank you for the thank you for the horse content. Um, that is uh, all I'm here for, honestly. Yeah, and they're like so. It was an awe-inspiring sight. These um twenty-six squadrons of big men on enormous horses, but like all the other army people who are watching them trot by are like, oh my god, look how um, big they are! Look how big their horses are! They rode steadily, menacingly, imperturbably. The thunder of their horses resounding in the intervals of musket and cannon fire. Like these very like cool images. Like mm. it's like he's like, so when you make the movie, hit don't forget this line. Um at a distance they resembled prodigious snakes of steel writhing across the battlefield and up towards the plateau. The great mass seemed to have become a monster with a single soul. So it's moments like this where he's very poetic and mm. It's really quite evocative as well. Like the, I, I don't know why that um, idea of the the silver snake with one soul sort of thing is quite struck me. Mm. So it's like, here is Victor Hugo being like, "Don't forget, I'm a poet," <laughs> <laughs> and then we're back in it. Um, <laughs> these are the tales that seem to belong to another age: legends of centaurs, titans with the heads of men, and bodies of horses galloping to the assault of Olympus. Terrible, invulnerable, and sublime, both gods and beasts. <laughs> he sure he sure is he's such 
Like, I don't know what the classics equivalent of a weeb is, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that thing that somebody posted, which is like, if you're a fan of fucking Victor Hugo and you're a weeb with an O... <laughs> You, I, <laughs> Oh, I really enjoy that. <laughs> Me weeb. <laughs> Literally. And like, yeah, but he's such a fucking classics nerd that he's like, I read the Iliad to you guys. <laughs> but yeah, so you get like these moments of big concepts and like olympus and all this this classical imagery where he like when he does that he goes off really hard and then (laughs) you'll like have quite a while without that which is why it was like okay what what is the overall style what are you sort of going for here hugo um and then so by a strange coincidence but we know that coincidences aren't real and it's all destiny um <laughs> these 26 squadrons were to be met by the same number of enemy battalions um they could not see their attackers and nor could the attackers see them um they could only hear the rising tide of men the growing thunder of hooves the jingle and the clatter of harness the growl of a savage breath um <laughs> That's also from. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's also from my fanfic. (laughs) There was a dreadful silence, and suddenly there appeared on the crest of the ridge a long line of uplifted arms brandishing sabers. With a cry of "Vive la Empereur!" the cavalry, like the coming of an earthquake, swept on the plateau. (laughs) Also from my fanfic. But like, Sorry, carry on. If it would all be described like that, like that is fun for me to read to you. Like, mm. it would almost be more fun if he'd just gone really fucking hard and over the top. Mm. Yeah. But like, I really struggled to get through all of these. Like, besides the fun little moments, it was like, for some reason, and like I've we the three of us here have sat through a eighteen hour live reading of the Iliad like I can handle things yep. like this this isn't my first rodeo but... yeah. well and, and only fell out of it at about two o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I almost maybe wish that he'd gone that hard on stylism consistently mm. yeah um okay so but then I guess if you're if you're upholding that kind of stylism like it loses effect after a while, right? Yeah, I suppose it lends potency to these moments. Because mm. um, you're so out could... of your mind with boredom that it makes some sound <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't know if that's, like, a good enough, like, putting him on trial. I don't know if that's yeah. a good enough defence to be like, I literally had to have something to fucking live for, Victor Hugo. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, it feels, it, it makes me, it reminds me of the point that Nemo made, I think, in the last episode where they were talking about... Um, like getting through the part on the sewers like really puts into perspective like this idea of how massive and all-encompassing these these sewers are and then you you know you get through you know you get to Jean Valjean and that sort of thing and it's like oh man he sure made it through that slog of the sewers um is is he making a point about the about war um (laughs) I don't think he is but I like uh, to put that on. I that. was literally <laughs> trying to think about Nemo being like, oh, but you know, if he's getting into all the details and it's to really make you feel the like feel that feeling of like, wow, war just really goes on and blah 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 that I was like trying to have that in mind. <laughs> but we're still like, uh <laughs> I still don't know if this I don't I just don't know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> like, but maybe it is and like I honest to God we're putting this the, we're putting Waterloo on trial once we get to the end of it. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I like really was trying to keep that in mind. Um, okay, yeah, so I'm going to sort of summarise this next bit because it will definitely upset Grace what happens nice. to the horses. Oh. Um, mm. And now a great tragedy occurred. So I hope we haven't forgotten that ditch that no one can see until you're at it. Stevie, I thought you said, I hope we haven't forgotten that bitch. And I was like, what? Is that what it says in the book? I was so puzzled. Like, I was just sitting there like, huh? That's so out of character. Sorry, carry on. Um, Napoleon sending that, like, snaking line of dragoons 
down that little sort of steep bit to where the British army are like at the bottom of it. And he, Napoleon had asked um, basically this guy who had led the French, the, sorry, this guy who'd led the English to like where they should set up. Napoleon had captured him and been like, he didn't specifically ask about this, but he'd been like, okay, what's going on with that church? And he was like, nothing. Um, and Victor Hugo's like, oh, was the... but should he have known that, should he have pointed out the other problems with the land to Napoleon? Um, and he hadn't chosen to. So it is kind of a cool moment of like someone very small could, could have like a great effect on something as big as like this kind of war that um, yeah. he didn't point out the trench. So the French are like riding down and they don't realize until they're basically upon it. There's no way of pulling back because you've got other people on horses behind you. Basically, it's sort of just filled up with the bodies of the soldiers and the horses at the front until it leveled out. And then only then could people ride over it to get to the Christ. British. Um, so like in doing that, they lost like a third of that particular like cavalry. Um, okay, but how big was the trench? It must have been pretty big. Like the the. I remember when we were watching that first episode of the BBC Lemis thing and there was like a scene of a horse like really suffering um, mm. and I remember you sort of saying like did that need to be there and like whether or not it did need to be um, like it probably we didn't really have to see that but if that's like a callback to these chapters because like the visceral imagery of like these horses suffering is very much there. Like, it's quite intense. Like, that's why I'm not going to... Um, but it's, like, very much a thing. Yeah, so sort of that was sort of the turning of this battle that they lost a third of, like, quite a big important part of Napoleon's army to this trench, which they hadn't been able to see. Um, and then Hugo is like, okay, but there are other considerations to the question, was it possible for Napoleon to win this battle? Our answer is no. Because of no. Wellington? Because of Blucher? No. Because of God. <laughs> oh my god. So we're like, he'll literally in one chapter be like, it is the fault of, like, this man not telling Napoleon this trench was there. It was the fault of not preparing enough. And then he'll be like, it was God's fault? So you're like, I guess that isn't necessarily two different ideas hmm. it could be like it's god's fault that he didn't prepare enough or it's god's fault that this guy didn't point out the trench but they yeah. it's very much presented as like i can see how they're very much could be connected but they're presented as two different ideas yes which is what i was finding frustrating where i was like is it God and destiny and classical imagery, or is it the realism of war and the decisions that you make and uh -huh. you don't know how these things are going to happen and he just, like, gives them to me one after the other and you're like... Commit, you coward! <laughs> so at this point, he's very much like, it's because of God um, that <laughs> basically things were going to happen in the world that Napoleon just, like, couldn't be there for. Um, he had no part to play, and their opposition to himself had long been apparent. It was time for the great man to fall. Um, Damn. And he's actually, like, quite intense about it, but he's like, Napoleon had impeached in heaven and his fool decreed he was troublesome to God. So he's like, <laughs> what a main bitch that literally even God is like, gotta get rid of you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wish God would step in about that one person that we're all thinking about. <laughs> Um, yeah, Waterloo is not a battle, but a change in the direction of the world. <sighs> yeah. It's such, like, it's such... <sighs> I hate I hate myself that this is what all I'm thinking about as you were talking, Stevie. But when you're like, you know, is it is it the, you know, the fate of war and this, that sort of thing? Or is it God? Like, all I could think was, that's oh, just bad roles, mate. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it feels like... Fairly, we've had Hugo sort of weigh judgment on Napoleon a couple times, like with mm -hmm. the like only with history can we see two sides of the man and see what's in his shadow, blah blah blah. Um, it was like Napoleon's excessive weight in human affairs was upsetting the balance. His huge stature overtopped mankind. Um, that must be a play on the fact that he was short as well, right? Yeah, definitely, <laughs> absolutely. Then, like mm. with the sort of sense of humor that Hugo has, like that yeah. must be. Mm. Um, yeah, but, like, 
he's caused too much suffering to be allowed to live mm. as well. That he's like the reek of blood, the overfilled graveyard, the weeping mother. These are powerful arguments. But then he's sort of also given us plenty of moments where those exact things haven't had an effect on like God slash destiny. So I don't know. I guess Napoleon's done that enough that God intervenes this one time. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. It's really weird. Like, I just don't understand it. Maybe because I just don't understand French history that well. Mm. It just feels that there's lots of, like, internal inconsistencies. Mm. Mm. I I am really curious about that question that I asked last week, which I didn't look into at all, of, like, how much he, as someone who was exiled, still had to show French, like, nationalism. And, like, how much that mm. warred between oh, his hatred of the guy who <laughs> exiled him. Like, like because he, he loves France. Mm. And um, he, yeah, like, Hugo loves France more than anything in the world, I would say. But Napoleon is both, and Napoleon is this huge figure in French history. Like, recent history for him, but, mm. you know how much of that, like, how much of his personal feelings he was swinging between, maybe? Like, I don't know Mm. how much either he was aware of or he wasn't aware of. That colours it in quite an interesting way, actually. Because it could be sort of the aspect of the way that he describes him in that sort of, like, that glorious sort of description that he gets um, and that his troops get um, becomes something that's almost twisted becomes sort of a almost an insult if you know what i mean like um Mm. despite having all this that and the other you still you still failed because you thought you were so fantastic and you're a fucking idiot um, basically yeah Yeah. Um, Mm. it colors it in in quite a different way that's that's quite interesting i think because i'd I'd Mm. forgotten that you'd said that and i'd completely forgotten about it through that framing and it does frame the the content quite quite differently Hmm. when he'd like gone out of his way to do that whole setup of like here's how confident he was here's how great he was feeling about how this was gonna go 90 percent sure gonna win Mm. (laughs) ha 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 i've already (laughs) said they're not going to (laughs) yeah Yeah. and like people Mm. in this time would know that as well right like it's it's not like us where i mean we know as well that you know, Wellington won, and he says at the beginning, but it's still kind of like the dramatic irony of it would have been even more, and would have probably read as more smug on Hugo's account the fact that he was like, eh, and he he was wow. like so happy with himself and like oh blah, blah. yeah, mm. it probably would have been quite. Um, I mean, it would have been super divisive to the people reading it. Like, if you think about it in the sort of way of someone writing something political now. You know, where like people are either going to be mm. like, yeah, fucking get him, um, Hugo, or they, or <laughs> like people are going to close the magazine, basically. <laughs> like, wow, that he's just, you know, mm. using it as an excuse to, to roast Napoleon. Like, he's so anti this, that, and the other. Yeah, I guess because we also have that like added layer of boringness because it doesn't really affect our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and we, yeah. like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> Whereas for for his audience, like how would they have read it, and how would like how would it have yeah. impacted their lives? Like there might have been people reading it who, like, fought not in that battle probably, but um... he does sort of do nods to people who are like, oh, um, so and so was eighteen at the time, and I spoke to him, and he said this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are like people who live in the area who like were around for this battle. Yeah. Mm. So people do very much remember this and would probably still be affected by it. That's interesting. When, okay, when was Waterloo and when was this written? (sighs) Published 1862, but he was writing it for like 40 years. The Battle of Waterloo was 1815. So it was, you know, only like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like if the kid was 18 at the time. Mm. I was just going to make a stupid joke. Oh, <laughs> um, here's the thing about raw is that it's just war backwards. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That was 
joke. Um, I feel like it was worthwhile, though. I feel like it really added something. <laughs> Uh, well, now you can make your good point, actually, Nemo. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> no, it wasn't a good point. It was just saying that if the kid was eighty, hypothetical eighteen, then the the kid would have only been like thirty eight, no, thirty six, which is like you know, yeah, it's not like an old man looking back at the Battle of Waterloo. No, it's like a thirty six yeah. year old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in the edited version it ends on grace's bad joke <laughs> that's exactly what this podcast deserves <laughs> okay this has been brown barricades along this <laughs> podcast produced by me Nemo martin and julian yeah did sorry did anyone have anything they wanted to say at the end I... no i don't think so we'll just have to keep taking forward the like what is Hugo's intention? What are you doing here? <laughs> what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why was this so hard for me to read, even though, like, there's some actual fun things that we all got to share together? <laughs> uh, if you like this episode and enjoy our discourse, um, we have two ways that you can support us through Patreon and through Ko-fi. Any amount of money is very helpful to us. And if... And also leave Rate us review. A review. Smash the subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or quibbles, you can send us an email lamespodcast at gmail.com, L E S M I S podcast at gmail.com, or on Twitter at lamespodcast, or on Tumblr at breadandbarricades.tumblr.com. If you like our theme tune, our uh, audio director is Jade, who you can find at jdwasabi.com or on her bandcamp at jdwasabi.bandcamp.com and <laughs> and thanks for listening thanks, thanks for listening nice that felt like quite a good episode <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I'm going to stop recording now so no one say anything else good. Oh, and another. <laughs> <laughs>